combative starvation of the 1950s in the People's Republic of China. That is likely to be repeated again, but to a degree, Russia can save the PRC from that. So we're seeing this potential, if you like. How will China and Russia's economies be affected by the war? What makes the segregated economies of the authoritarian axis resilient to Western sanctions? And how will the symbiotic relationship between China and Russia look? Today we sit down with Gregory Copley, president of the International Strategic Studies Association and author of The New Total War of the 21st Century, to talk about the possibility of China benefiting from the Ukraine war, and how, in his view, Russia might be able to handle Western sanctions better than we imagine. Mr. Copley, thanks so much for being with us today. Wonderful to be with you. So the big picture question that we're kind of hoping to address today is the impact of the Ukrainian-Russian war to the Chinese economy and the political landscape. I think we'll get to the interests of the different political factions a little bit later. But first, in, in the big picture, tell us your reflections on the potential impact of the war on China as a whole, given its current economic conditions. The Chinese economy has been gradually uh, imploding and perhaps at an accelerating rate over the past uh, eight years or so. Uh, now it's getting to a significant uh, junction point, if you like. Uh, so what's really significant about the war in Ukraine is that, in essence, it has saved the Communist Party of China and saved the People's Republic of China to a large extent. Uh, largely because it has driven Moscow back into the arms of Beijing. And this is something I've been warning about for the last 30 years, since the end of the Cold War, uh, that uh, the initial goal of President Ronald Reagan of the United States and M Margaret Thatcher, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, uh, just before the collapse of the Soviet Union, was that they should defeat the Soviet Union liberate the Russian people and have them join the West as a, an active participant in Western culture. And the Russians wanted that too, the Russian nationalists in particular, who overthrew the Soviets. And yet every president since uh, President George H.W. Bush, Bush 41, all have moved uh, Russia back into the position of being the adversary, as though Russia, post-Soviet Russia, was still the Soviet Union. And this has made Russia, firstly, unwelcome in the West, and secondly, uh, it has moved gradually to push Russia back into the arms of, of Beijing. Now, for a great period uh, of, that, of the, that last three decades, Russia was a supplicant to Beijing. Russia needed money from, from Beijing, and Beijing was happy to buy Russian defense and aerospace technology, and particularly space technology, at bargain basement prices, uh, so just to, and the Russians were happy to just get uh, uh, a few bits of foreign exchange from that. Gradually, the Russian economy has moved uh, towards greater flexibility, greater strength, greater depth, uh, and now it's a, it's a net exporter of food. What we see with the People's Republic of China is that it is a, a net importer of energy to a very large degree, the largest energy importer in the world. And it is also the largest importer of food in the world. And this is largely a result of, of China's demographics, its large population, and the reality that it has some 20% of the world's population and, and only 7% of the world's water. And of that water, most of it, including the water table, uh, the underground water, is polluted. 
So the Chinese food production is really in a bad in a bad way. Now, yes, uh, the People's Republic of China has been importing food from around the world, but particularly the United States. And this has been a very expensive proposition. Coupled with that, it, it puts Beijing in an increasingly vulnerable position to the United States uh, to be dependent on the US for food. You know, the, the People's Republic of China could not undertake any major military exercise such as uh, the invasion of Taiwan, because if it did, the US would just cut off that food supply and you would have China en masse starving within weeks. So the reality is that the Ukraine war means that Russia now cannot sell a lot of its agricultural output, food production and surpluses to the outside world. So that food will be available to the People's Republic of China at a lower price, uh, perhaps than they're paying for US uh, grain imports and, and soybean imports. So that's one, one thing. Russian energy also, uh, w w if it cannot find a ready market in much of the West, will find a market for it in the People's Republic of China. Uh, what it's what Beijing is was thinking about doing under the Xi plan was to to if you like, cut off China from much of this foreign dependence and build an economy based around internal circulation. In other words, uh, self-sufficiency. It's an unrealistic view and it didn't work for Mao Zedong. Uh, you saw the massive starvation uh, of the 1950s in, in, uh, in the People's Republic of China. That is likely to be repeated again. Uh, but to a degree, Russia can save the PRC from that. So we're seeing this uh, potential, if you like, for Beijing to get more autonomy from the Western world and dependence on Western food, and also uh, to, to still get a high, a large amount of food from, from Russia. So you've, you've got this new economic block being formed between Russia, the People's Republic of China, and Iran, and other nations, but that's the core, if you like, the heartland of, of that new economic block. And it may not be perfect, but it's, it's a, a good starting point. You've also got the situation where the People's Republic of China uh, economy is uh, delicate, it's, it's uh, opaque, it's not uh, conducive to good planning because we really don't have any viable statistics. There's no uh, substantial backing for the yuan. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, you, uh, you've got a situation where you've got large uh, debt being built up by the People's Republic of China. On the other hand, Russia uh, has much less debt and it has a much more robust uh, reserves, gold reserves in particular, uh, which, can, which make the ruble a potentially more stable currency. So you've got uh, the, the potential for this new block of countries, Russia, China uh, and Iran, to to build a, a, a relatively viable uh, situation. This is, this is, we're getting back because of the Ukraine war to uh, something that looks like the early uh, Cold War of uh, after 1945-1950. The reality is though, that you've got Russia and China with, and Russia in particular, with great elements of a market economy, so therefore they're much more creative they're much more flexible, they're, they're much more productive. So Russia and the People's Republic of China today, although they may have some economic disadvantages vis-a-vis -vis the West, in reality, they're immensely stronger than they were during the 
the old Cold War. So uh, it, this is going to make it very different uh, situation than, than the 1945 to 1990 Cold War. Uh, and also, you've got a situation where the, because Russia has been forced to ally itself with the People's Republic of China, something which it really didn't want to do, uh, but nonetheless, it, uh, it gives a different view of that block of countries to the rest of the world. We've seen all the propaganda which, which uh, demonizes Russia at this stage as the, an evil empire, and then coupling with uh, an inhumane empire uh, under the uh, Communist Party of China, and there's no doubt about that part of it. But the reality is, for much of the world, the view will be that there is not so much of a difference between the West and this new Eurasian bloc. What, will, what the rest of the world will start to see is that, well, nothing much to choose from, and if I can get high-tech from Russia and China, if I can get uh, food and energy from Russia or China, I might as well get it there as from the West. So uh, what we're seeing is really the world rethinking its uh, non-aligned aspects and its relative support for the West or for the Eurasian bloc. So it's, it's going to be quite uh, a, a, an evolution over the next decade or so to see how this work, works out. But we've now been forced back into uh, a divided world, a bipolar world, which didn't have to happen. I mean, there was, there was great scope to, uh, to just isolate the People's Republic of China, especially when the Communist Party was finding it harder and harder to control the economy and the population of the People's Republic of China. In the PRC, they, they know that it was uh, when China was 5% urbanized, that urban, the, Russia, the Chinese revolution in, in around the night after 1908 to 1911 and so on. Today, 66% or so of, of the People's Republic of China is urbanized and you have massive unrest in the cities. And that would have led, I think, to an early demise of the Communist Party of China within the next decade. And uh, except now it's thrown into uncertainty because they've been saved by Russia being forced to be their number one supplier. And right now that puts Russia in the driver's seat. But Beijing is hoping that within a year or two, they will be back in the driver's seat in this Eurasian bloc. So as you described, uh, China's economy uh, in your analysis would go through a higher degree of segregation. And even with the symbiotic relationship with Russia, do you see that China's economy will be able to handle this new paradigm of a much more uh, centralized command economy, uh, this model that goes back, as you said, to the Maoist era? It's going to be a difficult transition for the uh, economy of the People's Republic of China. We're already seeing the breakdown in the massive and successful uh, private enterprise operations in the PRC. They're being forced to kowtow more and more to the party uh, or to be taken over by the party or just eliminated altogether. So we're seeing this uh, disruption already. The, uh, the alternative for most of the population uh, is uh, to, to work for state-owned enterprises or to work in private enterprise, but in such a way that they are completely under government control. And we've seen that the move towards digital currencies and the like 
has already had an impact. You, you can't get on a bus, you can't buy food, you can't cross the street, you can't even leave your apartment if you are declared a non-person. The, the great advantage that the party has uh, is because of its surveillance techniques, they can see, reach and control literally every individual. So uh, the private ability to protest or to uh, move in their own directions has been greatly curtailed. So uh, as we see the availability of wealth disappear, disappear uh, in the People's Republic of China, so we'll see uh, increases in draconian controls. The, the, what we will now start to see is the use of those surveillance systems uh, being uh, impacted by the way in which the government responds, the way they crack down. We saw that recently in Xi'an. Uh, where there, there was a total lockdown nominally in the name of uh, a, creating a COVID-free city, uh, but it was about controlling the population, keeping them uh, literally under, con uh, under control. And there were many tens of thousands of deaths during that brief crackdown, ostensibly in the name of COVID. So uh, the, the greater surveillance and crackdowns will come uh, under the excuse that, uh, of, of public health. But the reality is that, uh, that we will see a, a, a continuing upsurge in government control just to keep uh, the, the population quiet. But this will also mean that it will dramatically reduce productivity in the country. Um, so the, the question will be, if, as they move back towards a literally a Maoist style of economy, uh, that people will suffer. And, and this is literally after the Chinese population got a whiff of the possibilities of some forms of freedom, not, caught, not given to them by the Communist Party, but given to them by, uh, by the wealth that they were able to accumulate. That's, that opportunity is now gone. The, uh, the fact that the only savings available to the most people was to buy property, that's all gone. Uh, so, so basically, we are going to see uh, the, Pe the People's Republic of China becoming more of a command economy again. It will be dependent on the government. Uh, they'll be dependent on the government to, to uh, supply them with food, which they'll have to acquire from, uh, from Russia and other countries that are still willing to su supply them with food. So it's, it's going to be an interesting situation. And of course, in all of this, uh, Beijing's supply of hard currency will continue to dwindle. Uh, and that means that they'll be able to buy less and less food and less and less energy. And that's why they need to get it at, a, at bargain basement prices from, from Russia. And I think uh, Russia will come to greatly resent the fact that, it, that it's been losing world markets uh, and being forced to, uh, to, to subsidize the People's Republic of China. So as you mentioned, the Chinese economy is in, a, or society in general, is in a very unstable state right now. And another factor that probably plays into this is the you know, faction struggle within the top echelon of the party. How do you see this play out amid this crisis and in the near future? Frankly, if you can, if you can identify all of the factions, uh, then then there must be something wrong because the reality is that most most people uh, within the party system 
are very, very careful about revealing their uh, support for anybody other than the General Secretary Xi Jinping. So uh, in order to be seen as, a, as another faction, and such as the, the, the faction around uh, Jiang Zemin, uh, it, it's, very, it's, it's dangerous that it's dangerous to oppose Xi Jinping at this stage. Of course, the former president, former general secretary, former uh, head of the Central Military Commission, Xi, uh, Jiang Zemin, has a certain degree of immunity. So people around him enjoy a, a degree of immunity. And it's clear that although they are quite clearly hardline uh, communists, they did support and, in, and not attempt to overturn uh, Deng Xiaoping's reforms, which, which literally were to allow the private sector to flourish on its own. Uh, so Xiang uh, Zemin could argue that he presided over a period of great prosperity uh, for the People's Republic of China because he didn't interfere with Deng Xiaoping's opening of the marketplaces. Um, so you know that, that the, the Xiang Zemin faction hates what is happening under Xi, which is the, the end of economic growth and the move into this hardline Maoist decline. Uh, so the Xiang Zemin faction is not happy, but the question is, what can they do about Xiang Zemin? Xiang has, has led a charmed life in the last couple of years. The collapse of the U.S. position in Central Asia uh, in August last year, when the, US, when the Biden administration made a shambles of withdrawing the U.S. military presence from Afghanistan, uh, looked like a internally in the People's Republic of China looked like a victory for Xiang Zemin, uh, for, sorry for uh, Xi Jinping, because. Uh, he had endured and the American adversary had declined. So that strengthened him uh, a lot going into 2022, uh, which is a critical year for him because he needs to retain a sense of being uh, in supreme control and being the only solution for the People's Republic of China as he comes up to the 20th Party Congress in October. Uh, and at that, he hopes to be re-elected as general secretary of the party for an unprecedented third term. And because of the events of the last uh, few years, including the Ukraine war, uh, it's almost certain that he will be re-elected, if you like, as, a, as, the, as the leader, even though the reality is that the economy and social uh, freedoms of China are declining at, a, at an enormously rapid rate. Uh, he, will, he will still get elected. I mean, you, you saw uh, that the in the United States elections uh, in 2020, it wasn't that President Biden was elected because he had an overwhelmingly uh, positive appeal for improving the economy. It was because of opposition to President Trump. So President Trump was voted out rather than Chiang Zemin being voted in. Well, at this stage, uh, we, we, we see that, uh, sorry, not Jiang Zemin, no, Xi Jinping. We see at this stage, we see Xi Jinping being the incumbent with a certain degree of momentum. So he's not going to be voted out unless there's a, a great stumbling along the way. And although we've, we've got uh, the better part of three quarters of a year before the, the party Congress, reality is that 
it, it, the momentum is, is with Xi Jinping at this stage. And that means that he will then continue to crack down on the, on the free market sector, the market sector of, of, of the Chinese economy, and will prevail uh, and, and preside over a declining PRC economy. Uh, and, and the real money that is spent will be firstly on the PLA and, the, and all the capabilities that go along with that, and secondly, uh, on food for the population. But the PRC's exports will decline dramatically simply because they will no longer be competitive, will no longer be efficient. Uh, the, the global supply chain is moving on. So essentially, uh, Jiang Zemin's team is unable to impact that. Uh, and and uh, we don't know what other opposition will come out of the party itself. Uh, because, as I say, they, nobody's going to put their head above the parapet at this stage or, and risk decapitation before the party congress. People are hoping that, uh, that uh, Xi Jinping will collapse uh, on the weight of his own failure, but that's unlikely. He's just going to ride the, the uh, wild horse of the decline uh, down, to, down into the ground uh, and retain control. Uh, and, and for Xi Jinping, uh, it's better to uh, to be in control of next to nothing than to not be in control of anything. And we have to bear in mind that a lot of the opposition from, for example, the Jiang Zemin faction is from the older generation. So they are going to be uh, increasingly less important as a, as a factor for Xi Jinping going forward. The real concern for, for Xi Jinping should be within the People's Liberation Army. If there's any sense that the PLA is going to be used uh, r randomly and recklessly, for example, in a war against uh, Taiwan, then it's likely that the, that the PLA will start to show signs of dissent against Xi Jinping. So we actually see the PLA as a major, um, say, roadblock or resistance to Xi's uh, plans to invade Taiwan. I do see that. Yes, I, I, what we did see with the one of the authors of uh, the the great strategic doctrine of the of the uh, Communist Party of China, which was the un, the document of un, unrestricted warfare, which came out in 1999. Um, the one of the authors of that expressly warned Xi Jinping not to accelerate this uh, uh, movement towards war with Taiwan. He said that this was something which was going to derail the success of the People's Republic of China. So uh, he definitely voiced the, the concerns of a lot of PLA leaders who don't see the value uh, or the, the cost-benefit ratio is not in favor of, of invading Taiwan. Yes, it would give them a, a, an end to the Chinese civil war between uh, the Republican uh, the Republic of China and the uh, Communist Party, yeah, it would end that and, and that would mean that the, the Communist Party had won the Civil War finally. Uh, but uh, that's, that's not enough of a reason to risk the world turning on the PRC. One of the things that the PLA is well aware of is the lessons of history that uh, once you go to war, the outcome is problematic. And, and uh, President Putin is finding that now. 
he he was given, if you like, a green light by the Biden administration to settle the issue of Ukraine, only to find out that when he embarked on that conflict, he uh, literally had uh, a can of worms, which he, you know, with, without any end in sight. And uh, what the PLA has studied is how fatal it was for Japan to have invaded uh, or attacked the United States in December 1941, uh, because they could not control the outcome. The outcome was that uh, the heartland of, of the U.S. strength just was able to gather momentum and defeat the the uh, Japanese Empire. So the PLA does not want to go on a on a any kind of war that it that has a problematic outcome. And that would include a war between the PRC and India uh, over the Tibetan Plateau and over access to the Indian Ocean through uh, Pakistan, the Karakoram Highway. So basically, the PLA knows that uh, they they must stop Xi Jinping from any 11th hour adventurism. And I use the, the phrase, uh, the Galtieri syndrome. We saw Lieutenant General Leopoldo Galtieri in 1982, knowing he was about to lose his position as head of uh, president of, uh, of Argentina, embarked on a war with Britain over the Falkland Islands. It was a reckless last minute gamble. and Of course, it failed. And the PLA is afraid that uh, that Xi Jinping might, in a moment of recklessness and despair, just commit them to war over Taiwan. Uh, and that could be the end of the PRC and the Communist Party of China. So the PLA is very concerned about allowing Xi Jinping to get them into that kind of predicament. Yeah, this is something that's quite interesting um, because Xi Jinping seems like he is a, a, like a completely diverging from what the, the traditional strategy of, of the Chinese Communist Party. And you mentioned this in your book, The Art of Victory, as well. Uh, do you think it's it's his own hubris that's pushing this towards that direction? Or do you think there's some, um, like, the hawks within the Chinese Communist Party that's doing this? Or is it hard to tell? Yeah, it's, it's hard to tell what's going on in the mind of Xi Jinping. But you do clearly see signs of hubris uh, where he, he thinks that he can more or less get away with anything because he's got away with it, almost anything all his, all his life as a princeling. Uh, and, and now uh, he's had the world at his feet until, of course, he ran out of money. Uh, so uh, I think he, he occasionally must awaken it in the middle of the night with cold sweats, knowing that he is presiding over the decline of the PRC's economy and strategic power, which was exactly contrary to his you know, bellicose claims uh, in the early days of his, of his uh, leadership that he was going to preside over the rise of China to be the world's most dominant power or the sole superpower by 2049. The reality is that that's not going to happen, and he knows it. So now he's trying to make a virtue over saying, well, uh, I will I'll remain in control for the rest of my life, as Mao did for the rest for all of his years. And I'll, I'll, I'll remain in control. And it doesn't matter how big the economy is. I will still preside over a, a nation which has global military reach and therefore influence. People will still have to pay attention to whatever I say. 
uh, even if it's uh, even if it looks more like Maoist China than Xiang Jimin's China or Deng Xiaoping's China. I kind of want to get it to one question that we were we're all paying attention to is China's stance against the Soviet Union or sorry against Russia. Tell us your thoughts on the degree to which Moscow and Beijing have aligned their interests at this point and how you gauge the prospect of Beijing giving military help to Moscow. Well, I think firstly, Beijing had no option but to support Moscow uh, on this war in Ukraine, uh, quite apart from the reality that it greatly benefited uh, Beijing in the end. Um, Russia, I think, would wish to minimize its dependence on the People's Republic of China in this conflict. What we saw in uh, the period immediately after the American withdrawal from Afghanistan in August last year was that China stumbled and failed really to be able to exploit the loss of American strategic presence in Central Asia. Uh, they hoped to gain credibility with the Taliban and to build a a pipeline across Afghanistan to Iran to get energy, a bit of a pipe dream in a sense, uh, because that's, not, that's going to be long in coming if it comes at all. At the same time, Russia was able to swiftly move in to offer security support to the five Central Asian states, uh, and uh, including, by the way, the re-establishment of the use of Russian language as the primary lingua franca of Central Asia. And it, and it moved into control the transformation of Kazakhstan in the uh, pretend uh, coup attempt of, of January this year. Uh, so Russia dominated all of these areas. So what we saw was Russia taking control of Central Asia. And Russia to, at this point is reluctant to let Beijing back into Central Asia. Uh, it put troops into Tajikistan, for example, not to stop the, the flow of Afghan refugees, but to stop the People's Republic of China trying to put more troops, PLA troops, into Tajikistan. So uh, right now, Russia does not want to give any ground to Beijing. It doesn't want to ask for uh, military aid from the PRC uh, to, to fight the war in Ukraine, although it might seek to get some uh, UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles, such as the Wenglong uh, drones, uh, reconnaissance and strike drones. It may want to get some supplies of ordnance, uh, precision-guided munitions and so on, to supplement its own, the Russia's own limited stocks to fight the war in, in Ukraine. But Moscow is going to be reluctant to ask for help from, from the PRC uh, because it doesn't want to give the PRC the chance to dominate this new Eurasian bloc. Right now, Russia is in the driving seat in this new relationship. It controls Central Asia. It's got the food and energy surpluses that, that Beijing needs. So Beijing has to kowtow to Moscow, as we saw during the original Mao-Stalin period, which Mao greatly resented. So there's no question that, that Xi Jinping and, uh, and Beijing generally are just biding their time when they can regain control of this, uh, this bipolar block within within Eurasia. Uh, so the, the, the tension and conflict will continue. Of course, there's the long-standing historic territorial disputes uh, which are between Russia and the People's Republic of China and, if you like, going back to the 19th century between Russia and China. Uh, so 
those disputes haven't gone away. Quite the contrary, they've increased in importance. Uh, we saw even last year, Xi Jinping uh, siding with the, the group and initiating the group, I believe, uh, which, which claimed that Vladivostok was really Chinese territory and that, would the, and that Beijing would soon reclaim that. Well, that set off alarm bells in Moscow, and Moscow uh, basically was punishing Beijing for that, you know, as recently as a year ago. Uh, and, Be and Moscow, at that stage, increased its support for India, for uh, weapons sales to India, as a, as a means of showing Beijing, hey, don't threaten us uh, over, over these territorial disputes, or there will be ramifications for you. So I want to zoom into something you said about Russia uh, becoming stronger in the long term. Uh, there's a there's some analysts who are saying that Russia is currently not able to handle the sanctions, that it's basically destroying the Russian economy and the war is a, essentially a money draining machine. So how do you see this play into the short and long term um, conditions that Russia is facing and which one of Russia or China comes out of this Eurasian bloc on top? Well, certainly the uh, Western sanctions against Russia have had a, 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 a dramatic short-term effect, and that was to be expected. Uh, and we do see that Beijing, using what limited cash it has, is going in to buy up assets in Russia at, a, at bargain basement prices. So that's, that's to be expected. The reality is that in the long, longer term, the economy of Russia is likely to be far more resilient than it would have been would, than would have been the case, say, 20, 30, 40 years ago, and certainly during the, the Soviet period. Uh, you've got uh, a market economy in Russia which can innovate, can produce uh, products to replace those which it no longer can get from the West. We saw that the uh, post-Soviet Russian agricultural sector responded dramatically to, to earlier sanctions, making Russia transform from a, uh, a starving country, if you like, uh, to being a net exporter of food. We saw the nature of the agricultural output change as well, uh, particularly after the dispute between Russia and Turkey in 2016 or so. Uh, Russia actually embargoed or sanctioned Turkey for trying to shoot down a, a Russian aircraft in northern Syria. Uh, and as a result, Turkey was banned from exporting its vegetables and market produce, agricultural produce, to Russia. So what happened was that the Russian agricultural sector took up the slack of that and began producing high-value market uh, agricultural goods, vegetables and fruits and so on. So what we saw is this evolution of the Russian agricultural sector into great one of great dynamism, whether they where they could export wheat to Indonesia, for example, more cheaply than Australia could export it from Fremantle. In other words, uh, the, the, the Russians were selling more cheaply, having to ship it two or three times as, as the distance that the Australians had to ship it. So this is a sign of great efficiency in the Russian economic and agricultural sector. And they will, I think, expand on that uh, going forward. They will replace the McDonald's and the, and the other uh, retail operations. That's, that's going to be a relatively easy and straightforward task for them to do. 
and they will start to build brands which will ultimately become their own global brand because there are a lot of countries in the world who are very anxious to continue to do business with Russia and particularly uh, the, these are countries in Africa and Latin America and the like. Well, there's, there's no question that sanctions have had a short-term impact on, on the Russian economy and on the ruble and, of course, on the price of oil, so positive and negative. So yeah, it has been hurt, but it is in a great position to recover. The ruble has better gold backing than the US dollar, for example. Uh, so that's a, that's a strong sense there that Russia is encumbered by less foreign debt. Uh, and it's finding ways to deal with that. The economy has become less efficient because of the, the uh, isolation which it has from Western credit cards and from uh, the SWIFT banking system. But it's compensating for that dramatically. It's, it has its own uh, currency messaging system to replace SWIFT. It's been in operation for six years. Uh, China is now about to join that currency as system, uh, currency messaging system. So this is really good for interbank relations there. Russia can certainly withstand the removal of US Western brands uh, to a large extent because it can replicate those very, very easily. You've got a, a much more entrepreneurial class of uh, businesses in, in, uh, in Russia today. So I don't see that this is going to be a long term problem. Russia will develop its own global brands as a result, selling not only into China and Iran and so on, but around the world. So uh, we will also see the fact that the sanctions caused the price of oil to go up dramatically over $100 a barrel. Okay, it's coming back down now, but this actually works in, in Russia's uh, interests as well, even though it's losing um, energy sales to Western Europe and to the United States, it still does have a market worldwide. We'll also see that in the medium term, the US will not be able to replace Russia as the energy supplier to a lot of Western Europe, particularly Germany. And if the United States cannot uh, help Germany compensate for the loss of, of, of Russian gas, particularly, then Germany will find itself very much uh, at odds with the United States. So these are all, if you like, follow on uh, consequences of the sanctions against the Russian economy. Uh, in the short term, though, there's no question, very, very punishing for Russia, very um, uh, humiliating in some senses for Russia. But in the medium term, uh, Russia can withstand this and respond dramatically and perhaps even regain a stronger position in Western Europe as Western Europe becomes disenchanted with this chaos which Washington has brought on them through the sanctions and through inciting, if you like, the Russian-Ukrainian war. With that said, thanks so much for your time today, Mr. Copley. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful to be with you.